Hello and welcome to my Success Stories podcast. My name is John Belton. We all strive for success in different formats at different stages of our lives. My goal for this series of podcasts is to give you the tools to pull through adversity and set yourself up for a lifetime of success. Today's guest is Dominique Kemp, mother, author, chef, entrepreneur and cancer survivor. It's a great honor to have Dominique in today as she talks about her meaning of success the challenges she has faced along her journey and the tools she uses to keep her focused and on track. Okay, Dominique, Dominique Kemp. Um, so I was did a little bit of research on you before we got started today. So you're an author, you're a chef, you've studied nutrition, you're a mom and you're an entrepreneur. Is that all fair to say? Well, so thank you very much for coming in today um, on one of our, our maiden voyages here in the Success Stories podcast. Um, and the key thing for me here today is to try and gather tools that people can learn from your experience and maybe some stuff from my experience that they can then use to overcome adversity in their lives, to achieve greatness in their lives or to just have a better day. Um, so success is what this is all about. So in a few words, what does success mean to you or how do you define success? Probably a good night's sleep. There <laughs> you go. I like that. <laughs> that is um, probably when you know you've done a good day's work. Um, and you're not worrying about things and stressing. I think the older you get, the more you realize actually how important sleep is. Mm-hmm. So for me, a really good night's sleep means I've done a good day's work and I'm not going to bed with loads of worries and niggles. A content mind. And yeah. I, I agree with that. Like my industry is all about, I, I'm telling people, it's it's become a sleep coaching industry versus a personal training industry because if you're not more. sleeping, nothing good happens. Exactly. So can we get a little bit of background information about you, your, your childhood? You did not grow up in Ireland, is that correct? That's correct. Um, the rather exotic place of the Bahamas, which is recently uh, in the news with the, the hurricanes. Oh, yeah, of course. So, yeah, that was always an, an annual occurrence. Obviously, How did you? Last year's one was really, or this year's one was really bad. But, uh, yeah, every summer we'd come over here because my mum was Irish. My dad was Scottish. Okay. So we'd come over in the summer and you'd usually go home in September to of trees through your house and oh my like god that. so you actually came to ireland to avoid yeah pretty much i mean the summer there is uh you know so we would have been on holidays and we had grandparents over here so it was it was always nice for my mom to come back and yeah. uh, see them and reconnect and you know the summer in the bahamas sort of 100 percent humidity really really hot heavy it's, going it's a good time to to get over here so scottish dad irish mom mm. bahamas then is the obvious connection there yeah. meet in the middle how did that happen i know well it's uh he was working as a chartered accountant out there and uh the bahamas was a and still is a tax haven, tax haven. there's yeah. no tax out yeah, there gotcha. so uh accountancy work is rather fruity shall we say yeah um for an island that's 21 miles long and about eight miles wide gotcha there are about 800 banks <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> 800 banks. So what was life like growing up there? Yeah, so for us, it was, I mean, we lived there year round, but there were a lot of people that lived there, you know, for tax reasons yeah. and a lot of celebrities would have had houses there oh and goodness. everything. So it was a, it was a fun place to grow up and like extremely idyllic. You're outside all day. All the time. You're in the water 90% of the time. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a lovely, lovely place to grow up, but... I think after a while, if you have the resources, you know, most people tend to send their kids away to school because the island is full of temptations. Yes, I believe so. Island life is not everything that it appears to be. Is that correct? Correct. You know, and especially the Bahamas, you know, there's huge problems with drug smuggling Mm -hmm. and and so on. So it's it's a very, um, you know, crime is high and uh, you have a lot of expats living there. So 
it is it's an odd place um my father passed away when i was about I'm 10 sorry. so as a result we moved back over here and i've been here ever since okay so it was great do you still go back to the bahamas any stage occasionally yeah mm-hmm. we still have family out there so we does go it back. feel like home yes and no um mm-hmm. it was funny because um, my sister and i when we arrived in and uh obviously handed in our passports to customs the woman said welcome home and we we're nearly burst into tears we're like god yeah this this is where we spent so much time so it was a kind of weird feeling but ireland definitely feels like home okay well that's that's good to hear and then so from from the Bahamas, you, you moved to ireland after your dad passed away and you fast forward a few years you got into the food industry somewhere yeah and how did that all kick off in between there was um horses horses featured right. a lot and i would have rid- ridden um for ireland as a junior rider and so no, on, what, so. in show jumping um sort of hunter ponies so oh, yeah um uh, i would have done that for years and then started riding at senior level and then i would have worked out in the states uh, for a grand prix rider out there oh so gosh. horses were very um much part of my life and was trying to become professional but uh yeah couldn't couldn't get sponsorship and started to kind of I come to the realization I was probably never going to be good enough to make money from it. So that hard decision where you just kind of go, right, I need a backup plan. And that's where the food kicked in. Yeah. And that's anyone in an athletic world. I think we we go through these realizations where, you you know, I suppose as a kid, you strive to be a, whether that's a football player or a Gaelic player or someone who's horse riding, I think you you strive for that. And then we have this realization. I remember having my realization where I was like, I was 27. I was looking at, I think, an All Ireland final, and I was—I would have been older than every single guy on the pitch, basically. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God, I can never play football for County Wicklow," yeah, uh, which was a, a big come down for me. Um, but that—that that is, you know, it's—it's it's great to have sport in your life and to bring you to that level, and it teaches a lot of great skills. Isn't that correct? To, yeah, to the, move forward. I think the discipline, because sport is absolutely. I mean, you can argue it's the same in business, but you know, sport is one of those things that if you don't put the work in. You just don't get the results exactly. in the story. And it teaches you so much about hard work, discipline, training, preparation, organization, all the things. Um, I suppose the difficulty with horses, it's not like your tennis racket, which you can mm. just bring around with A horse you. can have a bad they day. They have bad days too. Yeah, they can. They're amazing <laughs> creatures, but they can be stubborn and they can be sick and they yeah. can just not feel like jumping over something Completely. sometimes. And yeah. that's fair enough, you know. <laughs> Wonderful animals, but stubborn. Um, you know, I agree that uh, sport teaches a lot when it comes to business, definitely in life. And it, you know, teaches you all these amazing things that I, I presume then at a later stage in your life have stood to you in business and in, you know, with, with adversity, which we'll talk about in a moment. So the food industry then, you were front of house in restaurants and you were back and forth with different things. Is that correct? Yeah. So my sister, actually, I blame her for getting me involved in And your sister's in name food. is Peaches. Peaches. Is that Peaches? Yeah. Correct, yeah. So she had, um, she'd done a cooker course here in Dublin. Um, and then uh, I used to slave labor, work for her. Of course. Pretty much for first. Siblings are great for that. <laughs> I have two brothers and a sister that work for me. It's, it's just par for the course, I think. Um, so uh, I think when I decided, yeah, I'm never going to make it as a show jumper it's time to you know get a piece of paper and I, w- I was really bad at school you know I, I pretty much practically failed my leaving um you know I had no interest in going to college uh the horses really sucked sucked me in and then yeah. I decided to go to I was over in the UK competing and I decided to go to chef school for the year over there so I went to Leith's uh which was Prue Leith her, yeah. she owned the cookery school at yeah. one stage so I did the year um diploma in food and wine there and then just a chance weekend, I actually came back to Dublin and uh, met my former partner, Conrad Gallagher, mm-hmm. and he had just uh, opened up Peacock Alley. Yeah. And um, we met, hit it off incredibly well, and I ended up coming back and really us being together for three years, had a great run. 
achieved a lot. We got a Michelin star in 1998. And um, yeah, I think, it, it, you know, it kind of imploded for him yeah. at a later date. Okay. Um, we split up. Uh, I'd had Lauren at that stage. Um, and really at that point, um, I was looking for something that was a bit more structured in a food capacity. Uh, and that's why Peaches and I decided to get together. She had recently split up from her partner. Okay. She was involved in resources. And we said, we always want to work together. We have worked together. Now's the time. Let's start. Yeah. And we started it so, so 20 years ago. Were you chefing at that stage? Front of it, or you were chefing at that stage even then? Yeah. Okay, I was that was 20 years ago, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, as jack of all trades, really. Um, you know, which was really what you need to be able to be running to a business do. yeah especially in restaurants so i could jump in the kitchen you know um clean the toilets if you had to exactly. and be front of you. i know all of it listen you're preaching to the choir yeah and um you know my uh, my sort of non-structured uh, sort of diploma in plumbing and, and, <laughs> and all it's amazing it. what um you know necessity <laughs> is a great teacher isn't it <laughs> yeah, exactly um so it was a, it was a great experience i mean conrad obviously was a sort of enfant terrible of the dublin dining yes, of scene course. And um, a Michelin star was a big achievement then 20 years huge. ago. Was there any other Michelin stars at the time? Gilbos uh, had the star and i um, trying to think who else. Uh, I think probably Kevin Thornton. It was it was back in that era. But mm-hmm. um, it was a huge deal. We were 26, oh my 27. God, and was yeah. that your big goal to get a Michelin star? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it's, it's every chef's. A lot of chefs will poo-poo yeah. it and say, oh, I don't care, care about well, Michelin. Yeah, of course, they wouldn't. It, you yes, know, they, of course. You're allowed curse if you need <laughs> to. <laughs> Let a little one slip out. It's okay. I won't so, tell anyone. There's a beep. Um, you know, everyone cares about Michelin, of regardless of what they say. Um, so it is a huge honour. And that was back in the day. I mean, it, it was it was really tough, you know. Yeah. And like, it's funny when you look at Michelin now, and I suppose how front-facing they are and mm-hmm. how open and transparent they are. You know, you look at their posts on social media. It's funny, back in our day, they always came in. No one knew who they were. Yeah. They'd usually pay with an American Express silver or gold card. Okay. Or the booking for one, usually so, a UK number. Okay. There was always, you know, you so... You can find out. You, and they would often ask now, hold for... hold on. So they is... Who you're talking about there, they the inspectors. are... inspectors. The inspectors that give you your mission star. Okay, because yeah. I never really... For I don't know, I never really knew what the process was. That yeah. so someone comes in like as a mystery shopper, totally kind of anonymous. Oh my right? goodness! So you'd you'd be you know so if you had a single diner, everyone would be on high alert. Okay. Um, and they'd often ask for say a glass of your house wine, certain things to kind of test your standards. Yeah. Um, uh, often ask for a glass of orange juice to see if it's like fresh orange. You know, okay. bits and pieces. They try and catch you out. Always try and just see what your actual standards were. So, um, you know, you would never know, and they'd never necessarily come and introduce themselves afterwards. Now they're much more open. And okay. It's entirely different. Different. Okay, that's good. But it was definitely old cloak and dagger yeah. back in that day. So you achieved your Michelin star, and this wasn't where we want to go directly with this, but. Is, was that part of Conrad's kind of, you know, that was his big picture goal and then once he achieved that, maybe he felt a bit lost or, or what happened there? I think it was um, a combination of things. Uh, I think we we achieved a huge amount. There was a huge amount of growth. There was a huge amount of opportunity because, of course, everyone wanted him, you know, as yeah. part of uh, their operation. And we moved to the Fitzwilliam Hotel and it was probably premature and a okay. bit of a mistake. I also got diagnosed with a malignant melanoma during that time. You were what age then? So I was 26 or 27, yeah. Malignant melanoma, so skin cancer that was... Yeah, probably from being in the Bahamas in the era of of no seatbelt, no sunblock, no nothing, you know. I grew up in that era kind of as well, funnily enough. Yeah, and, Mm. you know, people... How did you deal with that at the time? Because I think, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with the realisation that you're, for me, where I was not going to be a professional athlete, I also had this kind of... 
thought that I was invincible in my mid twenties. I was like, well, I'll never get anything like that, and yeah. I'll be fine. And I remember, ironically, uh, we just had this conversation previous, but at that time when I was about twenty seven, I just set up my business. And I found a lump on my testicle for what moment, and I had to go and get scanned, and it was like this big holy shit moment. Yeah. I remember looking at a, at the ceiling of a place getting scanned, going in about thirty seconds. I'm going to find out A or B, so that was pretty shocking for me. But how did you deal with that at the time? And you're running a big business, getting your mission started, lots of things going on in the middle of a relationship and all of that. How did you deal with that, or what did you? How did you react? To be honest, I don't think the penny dropped with me, which I know sounds completely stupid, but malignant melanoma didn't really sound like you've cancer. You know what I mean? It just it's like didn't. you nearly had cancer it is was, what it sounds like. I didn't really. So, I mean, I had surgery. I was on a drug called interferon for a year, but I didn't have time to get sick mm-hmm. and to be sick. So I've heard that before. I just kind of cracked on with it. Yeah. Um, it was only really in hindsight that I looked back and was like, oh my God, like I could have actually died from that. Yeah. I don't think I realized how serious mm-hmm. skin cancer could be. Skin you know? cancer very serious. Yeah. Very serious. And the thing is that when it does take over, you go pretty quickly. Very instant. You know? Yeah, so, no, scary. Um, yeah, so I think in some ways it was probably good as completely blind and ignorant to the potential impact of it. Um, and in the other, I suppose... You know, at a later stage than when I did get breast cancer in 2013, I was like, not doing that again. <laughs> so fa- fast forward, that was a, so you're in your early 20s when mm-hmm. you got the melanoma diagnosis or non-malignant. And then in 2013, so what's the time difference there? Yeah, it's about 15, 15, 18 years, later, something like that. And then you yeah. got diagnosed with, 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 breast, with breast cancer. cancer. Yeah. So okay, so what in that time period was there a lot of work? Did you you, you obviously split with Conrad and you, yeah. you moved into your own business then? Isn't that correct? Yeah. Which was which was Itza. So we started Peaches and I started the Itza Food Group, and we just started yeah. with one small bagel shop down yeah. in the old Brilliant. up here in Food Hall. I know it well. um, yeah, it's, it's well, now yeah. a done deal. Yeah, done deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just started off with one literally 252 square feet of just madness you yeah, know it's brilliant, so busy it? and it was great um and it was just brilliant not to be working nights mm-hmm. that was huge yeah. break you know because yeah. working nights in restaurants so it's it's, it's tough going yeah. you know, especially with the young kid um so really we started from there and the business i mean we're 20 years in business coming up to our anniversary wow. now and we've about 150 people in the company wow we've about 14 locations wow. we've created five brands you know we five have different restaurant five brands, different brands. name yeah. them out for us there so we so, can all <laughs> so we have itza we have joe's which is all specialty coffee, coffee yeah we have alchemy juice co which is yeah. down in kildare village yeah we've camp sisters we've feast catering um, which Feast is catering very is very high-end kind of wedding gotcha. and corporate caterers. Brilliant. Um, and we just opened up in the old uh, Commons restaurant in the, underneath the Museum of Literature. So oh that's our God. new, it's a new kind of sit-down, more formal restaurant. And, and then what's Hatch that called? And Sons. So it's actually called The Commons. The Commons. We kept the old name. And Brilliant. Then Hatch and Sons, which again, very kind of Irish daytime, based yeah. on the little Museum of Dublin and Hugh Lane. Oh my God. <laughs> 20 years, 150 staff, and you've achieved all of that. Yeah. It's been slow, but steady. It, that, it's, it might feel slow, but like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a serious achievement. Thank you. Um, and clearly, one thing that we nearly didn't mention there was the fact that you mentioned, oh, and I had a child along the way. Like, so you've been a mum in the middle of all, or still are yeah. a mum, obviously. Um, how old is it, was your child throughout all of this? And so Lauren, Lauren was she's now twenty two okay. uh, at the end of this month. We actually have the same birthday, which is kind of weird. Um, That's so nice. <laughs> it's like Easy on prezies. Push. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, she's going to be twenty two at the end of the month, and um, 
then in 1997 or eight, I got married. <laughs> so very bad in remembering the anniversaries. Um, and uh, so we have a 10 year old together oh, called lovely. Maeve. So okay, brilliant. yeah, so it's been it's been really nice because uh, I suppose been able to do it at a sort of gentler pace and actually, you know, have two parents much more involved in the whole yeah. process. So it's it's been really good. And Lauren and Maeve have a brilliant relationship. So so 2013, nice. you got your uh, breast cancer diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. And you had this not again moment where you went, I'm whatever. Yeah. And I what, kind of what goes through your head when you get that diagnosis? To be honest, I just knew straight away because it was, uh, I suppose people always talk about, um, you know, finding lumps. But I just, kn- you know, when you just yeah, have yeah. a sixth sense and I just like, just this is, uh, this is bad. You know, I just mm-hmm. knew it was going to be a problem. And I felt like a little pebble is the only yeah. way I can describe it. Yeah. And um, I went up and initially what it looked like was that it was just going to be a lumpectomy, yeah. you know, no issue. I had yeah. gone for lymph nodes, looked fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. And actually I was in getting prepped for the lumpectomy and um, never forget the doctor. She's she's really lovely. Um, and she was just doing the ultrasound because they have to put a kind of wire in to yeah. decide where they're going to remove the lump. Mm-hmm. And I remember... She kept talking to me about my Irish Times column and she's talking about recipes. And I remember kind of thinking, we should focus on what she's supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. She knew exactly what she, she was, was doing. She was kind of distracting yeah. me because what the problem was, she then found another More. tumor. Oh, God. Yeah. So it went from sort of very easy course of action to suddenly like, look, we're really sorry, but we've got to throw the kitchen sink at you treatment wise. So we are talking now chemo and probably radiotherapy. And so I was like, oh damn what what did you so honestly now everyone's like but what did you honestly think then were you worried about your business were you worried about your life were you worried about like I was really mad if I'm honest I was furious yeah at who uh, just really furious I suppose that I was so young and Mm. um, I guess and literally two weeks before and my mum had passed away oh god I'm sorry so it was sort of you know I'd have found this lamp mum we'd buried mum in the middle and I remember you know I was getting the calls to go in to hospital and then when this happened it's just like oh you know wanting Why to me? literally yeah sh- shake your hand and just I was just furious it's mm, like understandable just give me a break you know what I mean mm. you kind of think you should have a break between raising kids burying parents just a little lag you just know? a little bit of time my life just cruises <laughs> that's it so it's like just you know hit me in my 60s or something just a bit of a break now um so I was furious and then um, my oncologist, actually, who was the same oncologist who treated my malignant melona, melanoma, um, Professor Oh my God, Crown. same person, 20 years yeah. later. I see, he likes to joke when we, we've celebrated our 20th year anniversary. Oh God. Um, so he was uh, on hand and, you know, he's a brilliant oncologist. And, um, you know, it was a question really of, of just plunging in and getting through the treatment, but just... I suppose trying to understand what was going to happen and was there anything I could really do to support myself during treatment. Yes, and we're going to kind of pause that piece for one second because the the, the whole story now of the, the realisation as to what was kind of ahead of you, the adversity you're facing, um, had, had you developed a series of tools previous that were, you know, that prepared you for this or is there anything in life that can prepare you for this moment or, you know, is it from being a competitive show jumper or, or sorry, horse riding or working in business, working for yourself, did you develop a, a kind of a resilience or a strength that you went, right, I have to dig back into that dominie here because she's the person I need to overcome this or was it a case of just 
I'm going to panic here. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I think, fascinated by that. I think once I got over the initial just rage, you know, yeah. and it was rage. Um, and then it was suddenly like, okay, I need to get my shit together and actually see how we're going to deal with this. Yeah. So certainly um, that kind of survival instinct and just, you know, it doesn't matter how annoyed I get. This is not going to go away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. shoo this away with the temper yeah. tantrum. So I think that sort of practicality which again you have to have that resilience mm. you know you've bumps all the time in sport in business and everything yeah. and if you take it personally and you don't you, last. you, don't, you know End so you have to just you know i got rid of that anger very quickly and um i found the nurses brilliant actually because mm. they were super at um because what happens a lot of the time is you know the consultants come in and they kind of talk at you yeah which is understandable Dump it all there they kind of and they're mm. they're under time pressure and they speak in language that's very upsetting. So yeah. they talk about long term survival. They talk about, you know, your your outcome. And those words are quite hard to hear when you're talking. Scary. You're sort of saying, "Wait, wait, is my survival in question here? Wait, yeah. why are you using that word?" So that's once you get your head around the language and you stop getting so upset when you hear people talking about five year survivals and things like that then it's important, I think, to try and drill down and understand. Now, some people don't want to know and don't want to yeah. hear. I needed to needed understand knowledge. every aspect of yeah, it. I'll know, be the exact same. It's, um, yeah, that, I mean, it must be, have been a very tough time, obviously, but it's great to see the person you are, you've became as a result of all of that. And Completely. It, I mean, when I first heard about you, met you was when we spoke at an event in the Mark Hotel about four years ago, five years ago. So you had probably came through the other end. So you had come through the other end of everything and you were back on track. Yeah. And um, alchemy had been born around 2014, yeah. 15, and I it, presume, it was, was it? it was an absolute kind of knee-jerk, sort of gentle knee-jerk response to that because I was so frustrated that the food that I wanted to eat during treatment wasn't available, you mm. know, in a yeah. sort of cafe environment. Mm -hmm. So it was really, I suppose, acknowledging that people have different food requirements and food is almost like a religion, you know, yeah. in terms of people preach at different you know, I understand. food churches yeah. and it was really trying to accommodate all those things in a food environment and um, so it, it was funny because alchemy is now down in Kildare Village and it's a lot looser now than it was at the start yeah. I mean at the start it's militant and if I get that wanted, I can relate if they wanted bread with the soup I'd be like, like get banish out. them banish them from the shop <laughs> down to from a, yes you know, like, go down to my other bread. business yeah. where you can be unhealthy <laughs> exactly it's like going indulge down there it's like this is so pure um, yeah. you know so it was probably a little too rigid but mm -hmm. I was very proud of it I have to say. so can we get the the kind of ethos for one for a better phrase on what alchemy is and how it became because it's essentially built around the uh, ketogenic diet okay yeah. so throughout your treatment and your healing process this is something that came to the forefront of what you were researching is that fair to say yeah i would think that um probably when i started looking and you know i tell this story quite a lot is that uh, when i was sort of saying okay to all the nurses to everyone sort of like what do i what do i do yeah. what do, you know what do i take we know what supplements um they sort of handed me the food pyramid. Oh, God. And I was like, what oh, God. It's like, are you serious? Are we still there? This is what, mm -hmm. this is what you're going to tell me mm -hmm. to eat. So it was at that stage that I kind of plunged into the literature. And again, I think a lot of doctors always say, oh, it's so frustrating because our patients go to Dr. Google. Well, actually, no, a lot of us go to PubMed. And we look at the papers. Yeah, and you read and the research. We really do. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was really what I kept seeing were these 
you know, recurring themes was that glucose mm-hmm. is a problem. Mm-hmm. Insulin is a problem for Big cancer problem. patients. Cancer um, grave sugar, right? It really does. And again, we can get into very sort of divisive territory because you'll have some very kind of diehard individuals saying, you know, the whole sugar feeds cancer as a myth, etc. What I would say is it's an oversimplification of a really complex process. I agree. But in general, most tumors are highly glycolytic. Mm-hmm. You know, some, you know, require glutamine, some metabolize fat. Yeah. But in general, they crave glucose. And it just makes sense. It's common sense to look at a diet that is reducing those kind of insulin yeah, spikes. Exactly. Um, you know, insulin's a growth hormone. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. Precursor, exactly. Yep. That's where a lot of cancer researchers are focusing yep. on now is insulin. And it's huge research now. Huge. But you were really ahead of your time, especially for Ireland. Yes. A- and how was that received then? You know, when you spoke to your doctors or did you speak to your doctors about this or, you know, w- were you talking about, oh, well, I want to eat this certain way. What are your thoughts on it? Or was it just something you went, I'm doing this because I've researched it and I believe in it. So I think my oncologist gave me some really good advice, which was don't do anything to interrupt treatment and stay lean. And I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And that was about as far as he went with regards to any nutritional advice. And then that's what had me starting to look at the sort of implications of weight and cancer and fat and Mm -hmm. cancer, etc. And so... Again, I really and also started looking at all the impact of exercise on mm-hmm. cancer. Again, not a huge amount of literature at the time. Yeah. It's much better now. It's, it really has improved. Really improved. Mm-hmm. And I think people are much more um, conscious of recommending exercise for yeah. cancer patients. <clears throat> but um, it was around the time that I met Patricia Daly, who's a nutritional therapist. Yeah. Um, she had had a malignant melanoma in her eye, actually, interestingly. Oh and she'd given up her career in banking. She had started to train to become a nutritional therapist, but she was kind of going the old fashioned route in terms of a sort of more uh, kind of healthy whole grains, lots of fruit and everything type scenario. Exactly. And um, her her tumor in her eye was just, you know, it was just getting bigger and bigger. They're running out of options with her. And it was sort of looking at that stage where they might have to actually remove the eye. Yeah. So she had started doing research as a Swiss native. Obviously, she's fluent German, and she had actually started looking at uh, the ketogenic diet and some mm-hmm. of the research over there. She started. She asked her consultant um, over in Liverpool. She said, "Look, can I try this?" Yeah. And he said, "Look, fine. We'll Work give away. you a three months, you know, embargo." Be better than Big Mac. And then, yeah. <laughs> try it. And literally, he was sort of saying to her, "It looks like the calm after storm." He actually asked her if she'd been getting a vaccine. <laughs> treatment shots uh, in another hospital he was like couldn't believe the improvement so she has managed you know her cancer very well on a full ketogenic diet for the last kind of eight years i focused um because i met patricia and i had had sort of been doing all the research and and kind of when we met it was a sort of why aren't patients being given these options why aren't they being told that there is plenty of different ways of eating other than the food pyramid that might suit their cancer better a better nutritional approach to support conventional treatment Mm -hmm. so it was really at that stage that we decided to write the book that we both wish we'd had when we got first diagnosed with all the latest research really good information that was up to date and i suppose just encouraging people to take some control you have to and i think we loved i see this all the time people want to just delegate their health and their well-being they come in and they think you know they're going to train with me and i'll give them the magic pill and the magic exercise and that's it and the reality is that the stresses that we're bombarding ourselves with throughout life you know the working night shifts for example and the emotional traumas and stresses that we experience and the constant travel and exposure to excessive amounts of sun and all of these things 
you know, you are the wrecking ball in your own life and you got to manage the, the, the exposure to all these stressors or it comes back to bite you in the ass. Completely. And if it comes back to bite you in the ass, you need to have a plan in place to overcome it. I yeah. mean, I think that's fair to say. And like what I see and I have to, I listen to podcasts and read books about gut inflammation, the connection with the microbiome and brain health and neurodegenerative disease and preventable disease. They say one in three people are now dying of preventable diseases. That effing shocks me to the core. Why would people not want to not be those people that are dying of a preventable disease? Completely. It's so frustrating to look out there on the street, to you know sit down for dinner with people who are clearly abusing themselves, abusing their health, you know, whether that's, and I'm not the fat police, but whether that's storing excessive, excessive amounts of body fat, consuming foods, and then just taking a pill to try and overcome that. That is so frustrating for me to look at when I know that, you know, there's definitely a consequence going to come from this. How frustrating is that for you as someone who's experienced, let's call it a near death experience. You've experienced that and, and, and things have been put on a plate for you going, okay, well, look, this is where life is. It must be very frustrating for you to look around and see people just constantly self-destruct and, you know, tear themselves apart, eat bad foods, stay in abusive relationships, work stupid hours, get stressed over silly things, take recreational drugs, drink too much alcohol, etc., etc. Is that something that's very frustrating for you? Is that what kind of brought alchemy to light and, and, and brought it to full, you know, this needs to happen? Yeah, I think where... I get frustrated is, I suppose, the kind of healthcare professionals that tout a lot of advice that's really out of date and is 100%. unhelpful. Yeah. So, and we see it a lot. And we certainly found uh, when we, uh, when the book came out, we were incredibly responsible um, and careful with how we um, promoted the book in interviews and everything to make it clear the diet alone, there's no diet that can cure cancer, no. et cetera. And unfortunately, a lot of people who were critical of the book um, and ourselves and saying we were unqualified and this and that and the other, it became a very reductive argument. They never mm. read the book. Yeah. They never actually understood that we were saying that this helps This helps uh, as an as adjunct. It's not going to replace conventional treatment, yeah. but we can actually do a lot better than mm. we're doing currently. 100%. And the problem is that if you have oncologists and you have people very dismissive of patients, um, you drive them underground and they will start doing crazy shit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They will start taking things that will interrupt treatment, that um, possibly, you know, contraindications. You're in a panic state. Isn't that fair to say? You will totally try bloody anything. If you, if you said stand on your head, uh, you know, twice a day and, it, and it'll help, you go try it. Completely. And, mm. you know, yet at the same time, there's this idea that by offering better nutritional advice, um, it's giving people false hope. And <laughs> it's sort of saying, no, it's giving people back control. Most cancer patients are highly motivated individuals. Yeah, you know, of course. we're intelligent people mm -hmm. that want to understand, is there something? Now, I take it that there are some people that want to sit on a couch, watch Netflix and binge eat carbs. And that's, that's fine. Grant. Oh, that is grant. You've no dog in the fight. And that's what I say to people. So I mean, there's no dog in the fight. If exactly. that's what you want to do, that's fine. But have the information and make an informed choice. Yeah. And that's really where my frustration is, is when people aren't given the information you know, what you choose to do with it is your own business. But mm -hmm. making an informed choice, I think, is, is critical. And the problem is the, the, the diet wars, the nutrition wars, have become the religious wars of the 21st century. And it's yeah. really frustrating. It's extremely fr And so I'm, you know, I've been in the industry for whatever it is, 15 years. And it's such a frustration for me because I will say, you know what? You know, like, let's get, let's go back to the food permit, for example. And then 
like fast forward a couple of years and it's like no no zero carbs fast forward another couple of years and it's like very high fat no red meat fast forward another few years and I, I've just gotten to a stage now where I'm like the more you think you know the more you realise hold on for a second <laughs> there none of us have a clue what's going on here yeah but it always comes back to this no matter whatever study it is I read or podcast I listen to the more people steer away from healthy, clean foods and start eating processed foods, the greater you expose yourself to being sick. And the more you can live a healthy, balanced life, the more you hedge yourself against being sick. So like keeping your foods clean and healthy and, you know, people go, oh, sure, it's just a burger or it's just a milkshake. And listen, I love a burger and I love a milkshake. But constantly doing that, that drip feed over a 10 or a 20 year period Completely. is something that's very scary. And for in your case, you got a scare when you were in your early 20s and then again 20 years later. Uh, what happened in that 20 year period? Do you feel there was things there that where you, you pushed too hard in any areas of your life? Or do you feel there were things that you were doing that were just not conducive to a healthy lifestyle or is there anything that without saying it have you regrets about that sort of yeah, stuff no, but I absolutely do and again it's not a blame game it's like I got cancer because of this but I definitely when I look back I would have um, definitely followed a very high carb low fat diet I wouldn't have eaten a lot of meat I was really lazy about exercise yeah. you know and I think that um, looking back on it now and I look at the difference you know in terms of uh, body fat fitness I'm probably stone lighter than I was in my 30s and um, I think all those things definitely when I look back on it I you know I was unlucky that I was so young getting it but yeah. at the same time it was probably a bit of a ticking time bomb in terms of how I was living and certainly the pace I was working at um, etc so for me now, I suppose the um, exercise is such a priority yeah. in my life, yeah. you know. And again, there was a really simple statistic that I came across when I was diagnosed. And it was sort of like 30 minutes every day, just no excuse. That's and just it. that became an absolute mantra. And so much so that during radiotherapy, I used to jog up to the hospital and jog home. I remember you saying that before. Yeah, because I, I saw there was a paper basically saying it made radiotherapy more effective. And mm. I was so angry doing radiotherapy as well because it's such an interruption yeah like six weeks every day yeah. you've come through chemo and had three surgeries and i was like and, and oh, go to hell you know to deal with. exactly yeah, and it, it just seems such an interruption but i was like right okay again practicality mm -hmm. if i make it part of my exercise and i just pretend it's my time out halfway through yeah, yeah. for 15 but, minutes yeah. i can mentally not be aggravated by this okay. um, plus the exercise doing me good so you mentioned anger a lot, mm. right? You're angry when you were diagnosed and you were angry that you were all of that sort of stuff. Do you think there's any emotional connection? Because again, the type of person I am, I want to research and read everything. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the likes of Louise Hay, for example, who, you know, and, and different spiritual people who will talk yes. about the emotional connection with with getting sick and with trauma and emotional trauma and how it can manifest itself on a cellular level and cause problems. Do you see any, do you feel like on that, that there could have been anything, not maybe in your case, but can you see how there would be a connection without a there? Doubt, without yeah. a doubt. And, and again, you know, it, it's, you will get some people listening to this who'll be saying, oh, he's suggesting that because you're angry you've got cancer. No, that's no, not what I'm suggesting. That's not Absolutely what we're talking not. about. But definitely, um, being able to deal with anger and I do have foul temper you know and uh, I think it's great sometimes <laughs> I think that goes with to. the industry I know a few <laughs> chefs you do get mad and you don't get second chances and you know when people screw up it's a hot dangerous environment in a kitchen and you need people to be focused if people mm -hmm. come in hungover no sleep no nothing they cause problems yeah. you know and so I, I do have um, short short uh, fuse in that sense 
Um, but I think I've learned to deal with anger a lot better. Yeah. And certainly I, you know, went and did therapy during cancer treatment. Very good. Um, and just learning, um, you know, I suppose you, you get, always get a couple of nuggets from those things and actually yeah. understanding that no matter how much you hop up and down something, it's not necessarily going to change the exactly. outcome. Exactly. So for me, that was always a good point. It's just like you're wasting energy, you're wasting your resources. Yeah. Cop on. You exactly. know, so again, the practicality kicks back, it me. brings back. Exactly. And does that come back from the practicality of having to deal with a horse or having to deal with sport? It's it's all these lessons that we're learning in our childhood. Um, and I don't know if you see it now, but I, I feel that a lot of these lessons for some reason are now like the resilience and the practicality and the self-discipline and all of these things for some reason... I, I think anyway appears to be lost in, in the kids coming through now at the yeah. moment on some levels and I think that's that's a critical point because I know I'm very conscious of sort of the way I raise my kids is not this if I'm going to drop dead tomorrow but I do feel my job is to prepare, the, prepare them for life not have me always helicoptering over them to make themselves sufficient and independent and to get on with things you yeah. know and I think that's important it's a yeah. whole you know, pushing the birds out of the nest, of learning to fly. So. Let them know it's safe to do it. And a disclaimer, I don't have children yet, and please God will soon, someday. So I'm not, I know it's a very difficult job and I, it's very easy to be a hurler on the ditch for want of a better phrase and have an opinion on it. But I do, we have, I mean, we've 12 and 14 year olds that come in for personal training now. And, you know, there, it is a case that I, they're going out the door and you're like, that kid needs so much support and help and they've yeah. got no capacity to deal with things and they're, like I worry about them and is it, you know, what's happening now in, in, in how, you know, is it, is it coming from social media? Is it coming from the amount of technology in lives? Is there, I mean, first of all, a lot of kids that I see now coming into me and they, they are stone overweight and they're 14. And I, again, I'm not the fat police, but I'm like, look, if there's one thing you want to do to hedge yourself against getting sick, it's like storing body fat, you know, you're, you're, you're Fat cells are storing things. There's a lot of toxicity in your body. You're putting your body under a lot more pressure than it needs to be. Let's not start life out that way. Yeah. And um, but it's it's more and more common. When I was in school, there was one fat kid in the whole school, probably. You know, and I'm I'm probably upsetting people by saying that, but now you go through Dublin Airport and you're just looking around. You're going, oh my god, yeah. we have an obesity epidemic here. And it's it's really hard. Um, like I'm a horrible person to go around the supermarket with because I was like, no, no, no. But I, the, you know, it, it's like for me, kids eating cereal in the morning is like eating dessert. I agree. You know? And yeah. the problem is that we're conditioned to think that a bowl of cereal with low fat milk and a glass of juice and some toast, then a sandwich for lunch mm -hmm. and maybe pasta for dinner is, you know, with low fat uh, and some vegetables is a really good, healthy way of eating. And that's yeah. what's encouraged. And that's what a lot of experts tell us. Mm. Do but they still actually, tell us that? Do you think they they're still... They do, they do. Who like, still tells us there, that? There Who still be, hears that? There would be a lot of dietitians that would support that way of eating. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's focusing on low-fat products that are usually fortified. All the goodness is taken out. Yeah, you fat's know. taken out, something else is put in for flavour. Completely. Because fat gives food its flavour, isn't we, that correct? Exactly. And mm -hmm. we need, you know, fat to for certain fat-soluble vitamins yeah. and so on. So you're really replacing kind of a natural product then with sort of synthetic yeah. vitamins and so on. Not as bioavailable. Bio and really, those kind of insulin spikes, you have to look at why then kids are getting grotty and hungry and so on, because there's a huge spike. Of They're course. going up, down, up, down all day. And it's only, I mean, I've, I've, I have um, friends who 
their kid had loads of fillings and you know she said that she'd talked to the dentist about what the child was eating and the dentist actually pointed out to her the amount of sugar but she was saying but they're all healthy yeah it's healthy products. juices exactly because yeah. flu you know smoothies and everything and he he was able to kind of point out to her very gently mm. the level of sugar well done she was the so upset yeah. but it took a dentist because again, it is just the sort of messaging of 40 years of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is when you have a very divisive situation when it comes to um, food and nutrition, the food companies fill that gap beautifully. You know, yeah, so of they're rubbing they their hands, just going, they're. no problem. And do you think that's happening now with the, you know, even with the ketogenic, there's ketogenic bars and there's ketogenic breads and there's ketogenic, it's like the it's gluten free movement. Yeah. Gluten free porridge, gluten free bread, gluten free this, gluten free that. And it just comes back to the lads, just eat proper, good, real and, food. And that's the thing. And, you know, certainly I follow a low carb diet pretty much 80, 90 percent of the time. As um, do I. You know, and that just really works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of intermittent fasting. I do probably about a 10, 14 day fast every year, mm-hmm. um, which would throw me into ketosis. Tell me a little bit about what that involves, the 10 or 14 days. Just a quick, it's, is it like black tea or what? It what is, ex- it's a vegetable broth. Okay. And, and loads of herbal teas. Okay. Um, for, for 10, what, light eating before that for about four days and then sort of 10 days 10 core days to the whole thing i just did a five week similar thing myself it's amazing yeah fantastic amazing but hard to do Mm -hmm. um but uh there was again the resilience you get from there's something nearly spiritual i know that sounds cheesy but there is because if you think about it fasting has a huge role to play in a lot of religions Mm -hmm. and they had the benefit of thousands of years of observational data yes and ramadan and all the rest of it no rcts but they had observational data about the benefits of it so what you're looking at is kind of these old adages, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, eat breakfast like a king, you know, dinner like a pauper. Yeah. All these things that, again, when you listen to podcasts and they're talking about longevity and so on, that it's actually is common sense. You know? It's coming back to it, isn't it? <laughs> totally. And the uh, it's interesting you say that because I, my uh, fasting period that I went through there was kind of exp- uh, an experiment as well. I was you know checking out a few things, but that came from a client of mine who's a Muslim lady and she goes through her uh, her Ramadan, which, correct me, is is it six weeks of fasting? I can't remember what I it is now it exactly. Is, yeah. um, and I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. You know, but I've known her for whatever, six or seven years now. She's a doctor, a very smart lady. And she, you know, every time she does it, I see this glowing, like she comes floating into the place in a real <laughs> spiritual sense of calmness. Now I know she's praying more and she's doing all of that. And, uh, and I was like, I'm intrigued by this. Um, what... And I remember speaking to a psychologist before and he said, well, one of the things we've lost now as communities, we all used to go to church and go to mass and okay, we didn't believe in God or we didn't believe in the Catholic church, but it caused people to stop and focus and, you know, have this moment where they were in a community around like-minded people and Completely. then they did Lent together where there was this fast and absence for, you know, we didn't eat our dinner, whatever that was on a Friday. But also, interestingly, people that are fasting together as a community, they, it's, they're very peaceful. Yeah. They're very gentle because they're not going to expend injury fighting, yeah. you know? So again, they've seen this Serve and yeah, really impressive. Yeah. And again, it's that kind of mental clarity you get. I don't know if you follow Professor Walter Longo over in California. I don't actually. So he does a lot of stuff on fasting. He's done a lot of stuff with regard to cancer and fasting and so yeah. on. And, um, you know, his research is really interesting. And I did quite a lot of fasting during chemotherapy completely by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just felt so bad that yeah. I just couldn't eat. Um, and uh, But actually, it probably 
still too big time. Probably, I would say massively. There's definitely, there has been some interesting preclinical data on improving the efficacy of chemo and radio with fasting. With fasting, so okay. you enhance it. Okay. Uh, again, just kind of makes sense if you're not piling in loads of junk, mm-hmm. you know, you're yeah. letting the chemo do its work your body's, uninterrupted. I mean, your body's not dealing with other sort of toxins. It's focused on one chore. And even exactly. for yourself, regardless, it's it's not a placebo effect in my vision, in my view, should I say, but even if that was a placebo effect, but if you know you're doing something else for yourself, isn't that very empowering as oh, well? So empowering. And you, you know. can never forget the just mentally that sort of thing. Um, you know, again, I'll hear people being very critical of, you know, certain cancer uh, societies that offer, you know, free massages or reflexology for people. Yeah. That's sort of like, there's no evidence that helps. It's like, if someone feels better in that moment. Totally. And it's one of those things that when you're, you know, in treatment, Sometimes you just need a little kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And yeah. that might just be knowing that this time next week, you're going to be doing something lovely for yourself. Yeah. And that just, I love that. that carrot and stick can just really work well. Yeah. I talk to clients about that when they're, you know, if they're going through, uh, you know, I hate the word diet. I fucking hate it. Mm. But if they're on a healthier eating plan that they're finding restrictive, I'd say, well, look, why don't you set up a massage for yourself or go for a manicure or do something small? Yeah. So don't think about that reward of food and don't think about the, you know, why I, I deserve to have that glass of wine and slice of cheesecake before bed every night of the week. Yeah. Instead, change your focus on that. So I feel like myself and yourself could start talking now and we could offend <laughs> people and we could go down a big rabbit hole when it comes to food and when it comes to the state oh, of yeah. the nation and all the rest of it. But if you were to give... To, to somebody, let's let's have two com- quick conversations on this bit. If you were to give the tools for to build resilience in your life, whether that was resilience with relationship stuff and resilience of, of running a business, resilience of being a mum, resilience of having a you know what you needed to do to get that good night's sleep. If you were to give three tools that you think are, are essential, what would they be? So I think not burning the candle at both ends really important. Yeah. I've been guilty of that in my twenties and thirties, and you know I'm I'm I really mind myself now. Yeah. Sleep, absolutely vital. You know, good eating, and um, just making sure exercise becomes a priority in your life. No excuses. Yeah, that's really important. The other thing is, um, I do a lot of work out in Wheatfield Prison with oh, prisoners wow. out there, and in terms of trying to help them start their own businesses. Um, the thesis that I did when I went to get the master's in food and gastronomy was focused on cookery education and um, uh, actual practical cooking lessons for right. prisoners. Yeah, something I'm really interested in. That's very, uh, very powerful. Because so again, how we could maybe roll that out to schools. Mm-hmm. You know, learning to cook should be a fundamental part. One hundred percent. Education is the key to key to all of it. all of this stuff changing. It's educating yeah. people as a you know you think you're eating healthy, but you're not really sorry but you're not no and having kids be able to turn around the packets of stuff and identify actually that's not great for you do you know so So knowledge uh, education and practical cookery because if you if you don't do cooking lessons and nutrition education hand in hand one thing won't stand up on its own you have to do both yeah so i think that's really important and then i think actually either you know if you sometimes we can all get into situations where we find ourselves a bit moany and thinking you know my life's not brilliant Mm -hmm. i think actually doing anything that you can either through charity or volunteering or something can give you such a good healthy kick up the arse it's so empowering to remember how goddamn lucky we are is that selfish that sometimes i mean i've done a bit of charity work in the last while and and 
I, I like doing it. Obviously, it's crazy, but I feel so good from. I nearly feel guilty for feeling so good from doing all of this charity work. But it's a completely natural thing because you do feel good because you are giving something, and people always feel good when they give something. Yeah, and they can see the impact that it has, and mm-hmm. it can be so small. It's not necessarily giving twenty quid every month. Yeah, sometimes it's giving your time and mentoring and assistance. Yeah, changing people's lives is so profoundly important important and, and rewarding just such a good reminder as to why you just need yeah. to shut the f up yes. and get on with it so mentorship is something that that is important to you um and do you mentor at the moment do you have chefs coming through that you're mentoring do you have you've a you've a number of different people you're working with or how does that work for you yeah so for three years i've been doing um an entrepreneur course out in wheatfield so i've taught about 20 25 prisoners yeah. now um and just the again the change that can happen mm. when you spend time actually often just building up people's confidence and you talk a lot about resilience you know teaching prisoners how to have resilience in the outside world yeah. without necessarily resorting to older tactics yeah but also giving them the language so that they can negotiate yep. without seeming aggressive because yep. again the stigma when you've had a record is huge mm, I can so imagine. you know i could get into you and i could get into a fairly robust discussion say we're on opposing sides and we're trying to haggle over a price or something yep. But if I'm love a prisoner... It. I can see the smile coming <laughs> on your face. That's what you love. Okay. So if I'm a prisoner, though, I might come across as aggressive yeah. because I'm saying, come on, John, you know. Um, so again, it's giving people those tools and yeah. that level of confidence and understanding no difference between me. You you know, you've mm. made some bad mistakes. You've made some bad decisions. Move on. But actually, you know, getting your life back on track, the difference to your family, the community, as a team, a community yeah. leader, these are all really important Very things. important things. Do you have a mentor yourself? Yeah, we did. Peaches and I actually, um, we, we got some mentoring there a couple of years ago because I think after sort of what was 18 years into the business, because we get on so well, we're so close, um, we can get into bad habits. Mm. So instead of having those very clear lines yeah. of where, you know, managers are exactly, and all that things get blurry. Yeah, yeah. So we did that for about a year and it really worked. And I'd recommend it um, because yeah, you, you, you can slide into bad habits, mm. all with good intentions. Of course. But they are bad habits. Yeah. And I think it, it, it was better for staff. They had a much clearer... The sort of especially the senior ops team, they had a much clearer sort of line of command. They, they know where they stand. So the last little thing I want to talk about is that beautiful book sitting on a table. And, <laughs> and, you. and for, can, can you give us your full uh, history as an author and what drove you into writing and what have you done so far and how can we find out more about the message that you're putting out there? So the Ketogenic Kitchen was the fifth cookbook that um, I'd written and uh, I'd, I'd written books all over the years and um, I wrote for the Irish Times at a weekly column, uh, recipe column from about 2008 to 2016. Um, so I kind of gave it up around the time that this book was coming out because I knew it was going to be very controversial. Oh, love it. <laughs> so I didn't feel it was right to, you know, have that position because I knew it was going to, to yeah. get attacked. Now, I wish I'd known how much kind of crap we were going to get. Um, Yeah, we were really unprepared for it. Really? I wish I knew now, you know, know then what I knew now or or whatever that expression is. Um, When did this book come out? It was 2016. And you're still receiving crap about it? Um, Yeah, sorry, actually it's 2015. Yeah, it's it's been very divisive. And it's just like, it's actually amazing to me because... When you look at the book and you look at the introductions and you look at the oncologists and cancer researchers and dietitians 
and scientists who have all written and contributed to the book and have basically said how important and exciting but very early days Mm -hmm. this sort of way of eating is for cancer patients especially well established for epilepsy weight loss type 2 diabetes um and then to actually hear the flack that we got i suppose the really frustrating thing was that we were accused of claiming we could cure cancer oh listen this this could be a podcast in itself (laughs) i put i remember commenting on it i'm not going to even i have to be careful i worded a lady who posted something on twitter about her mental health and all this and i was like have you had ever explored what's going on with your digestion and all these other things look holistically on it well i got (laughs) oh yeah all we need to do is eat healthy and our mental health will go away easy for you to say you don't understand and then 40 of her mates jumped in on me as well and i just went I backed yeah, off it. Nice, Little yeah. did she know that I, at that time, had gone through my own mental health little victory or journey or whatever else it was, and purely coming from a place of I want to help you. And people can be so fucking hostile. Really hostile. You probably you've seen that. I've, I mean, I've seen that in setting up my own business that people can be aggressive and hostile and jealous. And you got to be able to go right boundary up here, back the f up or walk away from this and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's, again, another good tool, I think, to have, isn't it? Really good tool. And I think um, it was, I was just very shocked, I think, because we had been so responsible. We'd made it so clear on every page, but you had people who hadn't read the book making assumptions and then deciding we were claiming things that we never did. Okay. And so you end up defending something that you never said mm-hmm. in the first place, uh, which is a kind of bizarre um, thing. Yeah, and but we're forced to do that now, aren't we? On social media, it's, oh, yeah. God, I better have the argument. But the really frustrating thing was, it was sort of like, look, we didn't go into a lab and concoct this as some way of eating. There are, like, last time I looked, 42 trials on, you know, clinicaltrials.gov um, of looking at the ketogenic diet and cancer. And masses of people as well. You know, it's not, mm. it, it's not our science. It's other people's science. Yeah, you're just making it, you're in a public to, exactly but yeah. also trying to show people how they eat this way mm-hmm. in terms of providing recipes yeah. and good information so for me it was it was quite shocking and then i suppose when you you start digging a little bit deeper and you understand how maybe some of these operations work especially some of the charities not all but some and i guess the influence of big pharma and you look at how a lot of research is conducted and you look at say where money's coming from. And a lot of times you see research that's being done that's kind of been done already. And yeah. you're going, are you just doing this to have your research published? Mm. You know, what are we doing here? Yeah. And I guess some of the, the the frustrating things is when you look at the issues with cancer and diet, and sometimes, you know, when people start worrying about weight loss for cancer because they start looking at cachexia and saying, mm-hmm. well, there's huge risk over yeah. there, saying, don't lump it all in together. There are some people that need to lose weight. There are yep. some cancer patients that absolutely need to lose weight, fat predominantly. Body fat, There exactly. are others then, obviously, who are at risk of cachexia where they need to maintain weight. Explain what cachexia is. So cachexia is that sort of muscle wasting okay. um, sort of uh, condition that's very much associated with late stage cancer. Okay. There is no nutritional solution to it. Yeah. It's poorly understood. But what they do understand is that people with cachexia um, you know, and often they gain, they literally are just wasting just, away. I've never heard of it before. But it's, be it's, it's muscle wasting muscle away. Muscle wasting, yeah, atrophy, the, yeah. The, the, exactly. Yeah. But the difficulty is then, obviously, treatment, etc., becomes very difficult. Okay. It's a self-perpetuating thing. Oh People God. don't want to exercise. Mm-hmm. The more they eat, the more they seem to lose weight. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is a lot of the nutritional solutions are eat just calories at any cost. So I ha- I know people who have who have been really in this awful situation of just yeah. literally wasting away and finding treatment very difficult. 
and they're told, you know, eat Mars bars, eat crisps, eat ice cream, eat chips. Get eat the calories this, in. Calories at all costs. Mm. Now, one, the problem is people with cachexia are highly insulin resistant. Their system is in a, a high state of inflammation. So you're and just you're adding fuel to the fire. Fuel to the fire. You, you've said it. And yes. There are so many better ways of getting nutrient dense, high trying calorie. Trying to manage insulin food. sensitivity, exactly. of course, to nutrition. people like this that have low, you know, low inflammation. Yeah. And you know, there was an interesting, very small RCT done on the ketogenic diet with patients with cachexia, and it did show that that cachexia, so that the keto diet is muscle sparing. It is, you know, so there can be advantages to it. But again, it needs to be very carefully monitored. There's a lot in it. It's and implemented by people who know what they're doing. Of course, and that's an important piece. And I think that really book will important. probably offer a lot of that. It's is that you can't just jump in and go, I'm going to have cream in my coffee every day and I'm exactly. keto now. And then eat sandwiches at lunchtime. You know, when you start combining fat and, and carbohydrates, you know, it's, it's a lethal awful. combination. It is Spike of insulin and then taking in the calories associated with fat and disaster. all of that stuff. We you understand. Know. So yeah. we see that all the time. You have people mm. making bulletproof coffee and then having, and then having a bar of chocolate with it. And you're kind of going, you, you're just not getting it yeah you have to invest time you have to be cautious and also these ways of eating are not for everyone they're really not how long does it take you when you fast did you say three or four days to get into ketosis or longer um yeah usually about three but three four days by day four i'm i'm and are you using a stick have to use the pee in the stick no no you you do need to test your blood testing the blood yeah it's it's really the gold standard so you're not measuring the ketone level in your urine it's a blood 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 testing case and you can get that as a kind of a in the pharmacy pharmacy. you can get ketone sticks um and obviously your your glucose sticks so it's really the gold standard and then again about an hour after eating um and just monitoring you know i certainly when i was going through treatment i was so interested in all the science that Mm. i used to track my glucose um regularly enough um, and certainly there was one night that I actually did have some pre-lentils. Um, and it was interesting. Blood glucose just stayed up and just would not come down. Yeah. It was interesting. And then there was another night that I actually ate, ate some chips, went up, but it came down really quickly. And again, it's that kind of slow releasing. Glowed. Exactly. Yeah. It's just kind of interesting to see very, what, very what spikes and what doesn't. And, and we, need to, we need to learn these tools. But like, there's a lot to it. And there's so many conflicting things that... It is, it is a stressful, that in itself becomes another stressor in some cases, and, right? And, you know, and Patricia is great at telling her clients, you know, as she says, look, if your diet is really stressing you out, you're doing more harm. Exactly. You know, and literally, probably the simplest and best things are just eliminating out processed yeah. food. Have some meat and veg. Try, exactly, try to, you know, focus on herbs and spices. Oh, lovely. Lovely things like that. Yeah. Just very simple messages uh, because some people just are not ready for gotcha. it. And that that's really important. Yeah. Dominique, I definitely feel like we could go on here for hours <laughs> or not, so I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to wind it up. Um, but I really do appreciate your time. You're a very inspirational woman. Thank I thought you. we were going to be talking about all your successes from business, which are <laughs> astronomical. But overcoming what you've came, sitting here smiling, looking fit as a fiddle, is a huge achievement. And uh, hopefully, a lot of people listening today will learn from from this, uh, learn from you. But if they haven't, then your book is a great resource there for people who need to um, to to kind of reach out. Um, and, and then also following you online on, on, on Twitter, yeah, Instagram. Instagram. What's the best yeah. way to kind of get yeah, your opinion or in, to hear what you're Instagram talking about? Instagram and Twitter are both good. So, yeah, we've counts for the ketogenic kitchen, but also Dominique Kemp. So, yeah, some, someone will get me somewhere. <laughs> Dominique, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.